Father in heaven, Lord, we we thank you as always just for this this sweet time of coming together as a church family, but more important, your family, Lord, you are our Abba, Father, and Lord, we are here because of you and to exalt you and to worship and praise you and your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what a what a tremendous blessing every Sunday morning is when we come together corporately for this purpose. And Lord, when we have those other times during the week that we gather as well. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this time now for the preaching and teaching of your word, for the receiving of your word, that it would be delivered, Lord, uh, with the power of the Holy Spirit, but it will be received with the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord. And we thank you for that. We pray that you would help us to and help me in the interpretation of the word and to properly convey it. And Lord, that we would all seek to apply it to our lives, both individually and corporately. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I... I gave you some different job descriptions. I want to go ahead and uh, you're welcome to turn in your Bibles to uh, Titus, uh, the first chapter of Titus. But I gave you some different job descriptions. And this week, I'm going to give you a, a uh, some job qualifications. They're different, the description of the job versus the qualifications for a job. So I'm going to give you an actual Um, list of job qualifications for a specific job. You can see if you can figure it out or how how fast you are in figuring out the qualifications for this particular job. First qualification must be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Secondly, must be elder qualified. Next, they must have spiritual gifts appropriate to the position. Next, they must be a gifted expositor who will be primarily responsible for teaching our youth group He must be uh, equipped to fill the pulpit when needed. Must be married with a wife who is well-loved, content, and in full support of her husband's ministry. And it's preferable that the candidate would have children. Must have a heart to lead people, especially children and students, into deeper worship and knowledge of Christ. Must have ministry experience that includes working closely with families, children, teens, young adults. Must be knowledgeable about the developmental stages of children, teens, and young adults. Must have an engaging personality with strong interpersonal skills, cross-cultural sensitivity, an excellent communicator. Must have experience recruiting, training, and equipping others, building teams, and discipling team leaders. Must have good administrative skills and budget management. And if you haven't figured it out by now, must be also in full agreement with the doctrinal statement of Calvary Bible Church. Exactly. These are some of the qualifications for our family pastor that we are looking for. And I I thought, oh, perfect. You know, if you haven't heard or read it or seen it on the website, I'll I'll just share some of these with you. But there are qualifications for this job. And again, please be praying for this this man that we know and believe God has already set apart for us here. We just don't know who they are yet. Um, and so keep that in prayer. And if you're out there listening and want to send us a resume, please send us a resume. There you go. But yes, some qualifications. So, so far in our 
our series on biblical leadership, the study that we have been on so far in Titus chapter 1, we have learned about this one office comprised of three terms from the New Testament, episkopos or overseer, presbyteros or elder, or poimeno, which means pastor or shepherd. And since elder is the term most commonly used throughout the New Testament, that's kind of what we've settled on to to call this office that we have been talking about, the office of elder. And uh, also along with this, We've learned that the elders, uh, we've learned about the elders calling from 1 Timothy 3.1, followed by last week's an elder's role, and especially then as a pastor and shepherd. Now we get to the qualifications of an elder in order for them to oversee and lead and pastor this local body of Calvary Bible, to pastor and lead you, the flock. What criteria, what characteristics must be present in an elder's life on a continual basis? And so with that, please go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. We should have this passage memorized by the time we're done with it, right? That's that's a good thing. But this is Titus, Titus beginning in verse 5. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes... For this reason, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, Sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. This is the word of God, friends. You may be seated. For this morning's message, we will just focus on the first three qualifications that we see here in verse 6. The first being that an elder must be above reproach. They must be above reproach. Back in verse 6, it says, if any man is above reproach. And then it's also repeated there in verse 7, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. So... Here in verse 7, we see Paul use that episkopos for overseer. And then the fact that he is to be above reproach as God's steward. Now, steward, the word there literally means to deal out or to distribute or to apportion. And back then it was as an administrator, a person who managed the domestic affairs of a family, a house manager, an overseer of a household. So for an elder in the church, then it means that he is God's household manager. He is assigned to take care of the things that are most valuable to God, namely his children and each local church. This is a solemn position of trust given to an elder as he acts on behalf of God's interests. I mean, think about it, right? If parents, you know, we are not going to intentionally 
entrust our children, our house, our finances to an untrustworthy or incompetent person, right? So the holy God of heaven and earth will not trust his most precious children and the oversight of his church to unfit, unqualified stewards. It just can't happen. Now, it's no coincidence that this is also the first qualification for an elder over in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. It says there, an overseer then must be above reproach. And notice the word must in both 1 Timothy and Titus 1.7, which tells us that these or the following qualifications are non-negotiables for any elder. They are have-tos. In fact, the Greek grammar tells us that all of these qualities must be present in an elder's life, which is also to say that if any of these qualities are not present, that if any one of them is missing, the person is not qualified. Now, if you were to get a job as a police officer, there would be certain have-tos or else you wouldn't be allowed to be a cop. You'd have to pass a written, physical, and psychological evaluation. Next, you'd have to attend the police academy to get training. You have to learn how to deal with all kinds of people and to drive and shoot and write tickets and make arrests. Once you're on the force, you'd have to keep people safe and you'd have to catch criminals. You'd also have to continue your training throughout the years. And lastly, most importantly, you would have to love donuts. I can say this because my dad was a cop and he loved donuts. I remember when he, <laughs> I was home for a summer and he, he, there was a, they would shift and, you know, they'd have their lunches here at this restaurant for a while and then a donut shop. And uh, so I used to go down and meet him at the donut shop because you got free donuts, you know, so there you go. But you fail or don't do any one of these things and you will not allow to keep your job as a police officer. Likewise, for an elder, we're not saying that an elder will live these qualifications out perfectly all the time. Of course, he won't because we're all sinners, but we need to be habitually exhibiting these qualifications in our lives, in an elder's life to some degree. Now, what does it mean to be above reproach? Well, the Greek word there is anegletos, anegletos, and the the prefix an means without, and egletos means to accuse in court. So literally, it means without accusation. As uh, the Complete Word Study Dictionary of the New Testament says, not merely unaccusable, but unaccused, free from any legal charge. End quote. And this is the case for both mentionings of reproach in Titus and in, uh, excuse me, in Titus uh, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, because it's mentioned there twice. And then interestingly, over in 1 Timothy 3, 1, Paul uses a different word for reproach. He uses epileptos, which means to seize. It's the word that we get epilepsy from. In this case, it also has the prefix an, so it becomes 
without seizing or unable to seize. And it refers to someone who has nothing that an adversary could seize upon with which to base a charge against them. No charge can be made against them. Uh, someone sees a, a uh, church elder stumble out of a local bar drunk with a bottle in his hand and reeking of booze and stumbling down the street. Then you probably would have something to seize upon with which to make a charge, right? Then in 1 Timothy 3.10, Paul switches to Anglitos uh, in reference to deacons. But both Greek words really are synonymous with one another. So simply put, simply put, they both mean blameless, blameless, that you have done nothing or the the elder has done nothing to bring legitimate accusation against themselves, as well as in the sense that no unfounded accusations would even stick Because of the character of their lives and their Christian walks. Now you think somebody, somebody could have tried to accuse Mother Teresa, you know, of something scandalous like robbing the poor. But again, who would believe it because of the general character that she demonstrated in her life day in and day out? Turn with me, if you will, to Daniel 6. Keep your, your, your bookmark there and turn back to Daniel Chapter six. Daniel's just Daniel's a great example of someone who is blameless and above reproach. Now, you may remember Daniel was carried off to Babylon with the other Jewish exiles where he quickly showed himself to be useful to the kings there, such as Nebuchadnezzar, because he interpreted dreams and then he quickly rose to prominence in the kingdom. He also interpreted the writing on the wall for Belshazzar. And though it was not good, Belshazzar still honored him, Daniel. Which then brings us to chapter 6 and Daniel's service now to King Darius. Look at Daniel 6 beginning in verse 1. In fact, we'll read verses 1 to 5. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom. These are just governors, rulers, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. We could just insert here because they were jealous, right? Verse 5, then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him in regard with regard to the law of his God. And you might know the rest of the story. They had the king make a law that worship was only to be made to the king and not to any other God, not to any other man punishable by the lion's den, right? The lion's den. 
Job is another tremendous example of someone being above reproach and blameless. In fact, God himself describes Job as a blameless and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil. And Satan wanted so badly, didn't he, to bring an accusation against Job. Satan tried to find a way to accuse him, but he could not because Job was blameless and above reproach. Now, what being approach, being above reproach does not mean is that, again, an elder is free from sin. We know that this is not the case, for again, we are all sinners and capable of reaching perfection in this life. But rather, it refers to an elder's general reputation and the fact that they would be seen inside the church and even outside the church as someone blameless and upright. In other words, their personal walk is spiritually solid and their Christian testimony is intact. John Calvin once said, It is one thing to be weighed down by ordinary faults that do not tarnish a person's reputation because most other good men share such faults, but it is totally a different matter to have a reputation that is derided and blackened by scandal. End quote. And notice too that this qualification for being above Reproach, it is really the overarching umbrella qualification of which all the others fall under. It's the foundation to the rest of the qualifications because if any one of those other qualifications are not adhered to, then guess what? Then they are no longer above reproach as an elder. Another reason why elders need to be above reproach and blameless is because of what we see or read in first peter chapter 5 verse 3 where it says that elders are to be living examples to you the flock to follow as uh, alexander strock in his book biblical eldership writes quote elders are to model the character and conduct that god desires for his children end quote For instance, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15, God calls all of his children, not just elders, all to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So you can see there that this is also one of those qualifications that is directly applicable To all of us, all of you, it's just that elders, we need to be leading the way by example. Now, secondly, secondly, in verse six of Titus one, an elder must be the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Paul uses the same phrase in 1 Timothy 3.1, where the Greek literally reads a one woman man. Now, there is much debate as to what exactly this means. And and I'm going to break it down to kind of four major viewpoints out there about this qualification, about this phrase. The first viewpoint believes that this means an elder must be married, that they must have a wife or they can't be an elder. I don't think that this is the best understanding for the following reasons. One, it assumes that the Greek would read husband and wife. 
whereas it reads really man and woman. Secondly, Greek grammar tells us that the emphasis of the phrase is on one, that they are a one um, woman man. The emphasis is not on woman or man. Thirdly, based on this understanding, neither Paul or Timothy would be qualified as elders because Paul was single. And it's likely that Timothy was too. Uh, We're not told of any wife that Timothy had. Uh, Number four, it runs counter to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 about how being single is a positive trait for church workers. And fifthly, with this line of reasoning, one would also have to conclude in verse 4 that elders are not only required to have children then, but they must have more than one child if we were to follow that line of reasoning. And then lastly, back then, the truth is, is most men were married, so it really would have been pretty much a moot point. Second viewpoint, second viewpoint is that being the husband of one woman or a one woman man is specifically prohibiting polygamy. That it's saying an elder must only have one wife, not two, not three, not four, not, you know, a harem or any such thing. And I would say that this is also not the best understanding of this this phrase because one polygamy was already prohibited for Christians as was having um, concubines or mistresses, etc. Secondly, there's a lack of evidence that it existed among Christians back then. Thirdly, while we do see polygamy sinfully occur with some in the Bible in the Old Testament, especially those who were kings, even David and Solomon. Most scholars believe it was not a widespread problem for Judaism of the day. Fourthly, we see the reverse of the phrase, a one-woman man, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, regarding widows, where it says that a widow can be put on a church helps list if she has been a one husband woman. And there it's not referring to multiple husbands, but rather being devoted to her husband. And because these phrases are, are, are so unusual, but yet similar, it would be safe to understand them as having the same meaning. Now, a third viewpoint of a one woman man is that an elder could only have ever been married once. In other words, anyone who had been divorced or and remarried or whose spouse had died would not be qualified. This is also, I believe, not the best interpretation as Jesus himself does allow for divorce and even remarriage due to infidelity. We see that in Matthew 19 and verse 9. And then the Lord... Through Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 allows for divorce if an unbelieving spouse initiates it. Furthermore, Paul allows for widows to remarry in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 39. So there's no reason to think that a widower also wouldn't be allowed to remarry. So considering the qualifications of Titus 1 five to nine, all of the qualifications, it seems that the emphasis on all of these is either moral or spiritual standards versus some kind of legalistic uh, uh, qualifiers, which take us to the fourth and what I believe is the best interpretation that Paul is referring to marital faithfulness. 
marital faithfulness for those that are married or for a single man, the implication being that he has been sexually pure, is sexually pure. And I believe this for the following reasons. One, as we just said, marital faithfulness and sexual purity best fit in with the moral context for these qualifications. Secondly, marital faithfulness uh, is a positive trait which stays consistent with the qualifications that are kind of on either side of it in, in the scripture, being above reproach on one side and having children who believe. It is also positioned in the positive traits section of 1 Timothy 3.2. Thirdly, this would be the best understanding of that similar phrase over in 1 Timothy 5, 9 pertaining to widows, that they have exhibited marital faithfulness. And lastly, it best fits in with what the rest of Scripture teaches about marriage, including the prohibition from polygamy and concubinage and homosexuality and or any questionable sexual relationship. Now, again, this phrase is not saying that an elder must be married, but if he is married, he is to continually be faithful to his wife. And if he was previously married as a believer, but is now a widower, or we could say has been through a biblical divorce, he must have been faithful to his wife. He loves, desires, and, and thinks of only her. One pastor has written, A one-woman man is a man devoted in his heart and mind to the woman who is his wife. He maintains sexual purity in both his thought life and his conduct. End quote. Winston Churchill once attended a formal banquet in London where the dignitaries were all asked this question, if you could be, uh, if you could not be who you are, who would you like to be? And naturally everyone was curious as to what Churchill, who was seated next to his beloved wife, Clemmy, would say. And so when it was finally his turn, the old man, the last respondent uh, for the question rose and he gave this answer. If I could not be who I am, I would most like to be. And it says he paused here at this time and took Clemmy's hand in his, Lady Churchill's second husband. <laughs> That's a one-woman man, right? Love that. Now, it's interesting to note that this trait is both second on the list here in Titus and in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and it is part of the list for deacons in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 12. Robertson McQuilkin, author of An Introduction to Biblical Ethics, tells us why. Quote, God's standards on human sexuality are treated in Scripture as the most important of all rules for relations among people. In the Old Testament, teaching against adultery is emphasized only second to teaching against idolatry. In the New Testament, both Christ and the apostles emphasized marital fidelity. Paul includes sexual sins in every one of his many lists of sins. And in most cases, they head the list and receive the greatest emphasis. End quote. 
Friends, truth be told, adultery and sexual immorality, sexual impurity, do some of the greatest harm to churches. Because it rarely just affects two people. And in the case of a leader in the church, it affects not just the whole congregation, but the church's reputation in the community. He is no longer above reproach. We might add, nor would the church be. And so when an elder falls into sexual sin, it will be devastating to both he and his wife, their children, their family members, the church as a whole, and even the community in which they live or the church resides. Lives get ruined because of sexual sin. But the worst is that we we tear down Christ with us. We drag Christ through the mud. We drag Christ's name in the muck and mire. His name gets trampled on, soiled, and denigrated when this happens. Now, I recognize that we haven't answered every question surrounding this issue. Unfortunately, we only have so much time each morning, and so we will leave any further questions for another series. And lastly, this morning, our, our third must here for an elder, they must have children who believe. Having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion back there in Titus chapter 1, verse 6. And you go, wait a minute, did, did, I, did I read that right? That's, that's very interesting. Because this passage seems to explicitly say that the elder's children must be believers, saved, bona fide Christians. Is this so? Well, maybe at first glance. But if you happen to have a King James or a new King James or, or some other version, you might have a, a different translation than what I just read. But before we look at a different translation of what those two say, let us start with kind of the back end first here and address the explanation that children are not to be accused of dissipation or rebellion. Dissipation literally means prodigal. Prodigal, and it refers to an abandoned, reckless, wasteful lifestyle. It can also mean a lack of moral restraint, extravagant squandering, lawless insolence, drunkenness, and debauchery, such as the prodigal son of Luke 15, hence the name. Rebellion simply means not under control, unruly, disorderly, and disobedient to authority, most pointedly towards the word of God. So getting back to the, the question then of translation, we said that most of your Bibles say children who believe or believing children, unless you have a King James version, a King James version says this, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly or the new king james version says having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination and the reason for this is because the greek word here pistos it can have some different meanings including faithful and in fact this is by far the more common way of translating this word in the New Testament. Some 67 times 
it's translated as faithful versus some eight times where it's translated as believe or believing. And so, of course, we have to ask the question, so which is it to be? Which one is it? Because how this word gets translated and interpreted has has major consequences to an elder's qualification. Is one of the qualifiers for an elder with children that his children be saved Christians? Or is it that his children are to be faithful in their submission and obedience, not accused of dissipation or rebellion? So let me just say at the outset here first that I, I do believe the proper interpretation for this word here in Titus 1.6 should be children who are faithful. And I would, I would say that for the following reasons. First, it can be very difficult to assess or ascertain whether a child is truly saved. Now, what about those men who have children who are not yet able to grasp or or understand the gospel, and who's to say at what point in time that might happen? So should men in this position who are otherwise qualified to serve not serve? And this is why I believe God gives the specific explanation of the children being kept under control and without dissipation and rebellion. Also, any child can profess Christ at any time, but a mere profession of faith doesn't mean true salvation. Rather, sanctification will point back and be the proof of true saving faith, right? Uh, These men then, should they who are otherwise qualified also not serve until they are 100% absolutely certain about where their children are at, even if the children are without dissipation and rebellion? And of course, then the question is, well, how can a man be 100% sure? How can a congregation or an elder board be 100% certain of this? And again, yes, there are indicators and there are proofs, both internal and external, subjective and objective of a truly saved life where one can be reasonably sure of another's salvation. But at the end of the day, or or shall we say at the end of a person's life, it will not be any of us that passes judgment, but God. And God alone knows 100% the true heart and soul of a person. I mean, let's face it, you know, with With children, it can be even more uh, difficult simply for the fact that their maturity levels seem to fluctuate, sometimes in great degrees, even during a 24-hour period. I'm sure many of you at times look at your son or your daughter, you know, as a young person under your care, and you go, oh, yes, they have the love of Jesus. And then two minutes later, you're wondering if demon possession really can be happening in a believer. And again, not to say that there aren't evidences of true conversion and regeneration that absolutely will be a part of a true believer's life, young or old. It's just that with children, sometimes these evidences are just a little harder to ascertain. I mean, what happens to the man who has served as an elder, either past or present, with a child who had professed faith, but then turns his back on the faith? 
and goes apostate. Well, does that mean that man was never qualified because his child was never truly saved? Does it mean that he was a, a fraud and the ministry that he labored in was nothing but wood, hay, and stubble because his child rejected the faith that they were brought up in? And what about an elders whose child rejects the faith but is not living in dissipation or outward rebellion? Strzok again writes, those who interpret this qualification to mean that an elder must have believing Christian children place an impossible burden on the father. Even the best Christian fathers cannot guarantee their children will believe salvation is a supernatural act of God. End quote. Turn, uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy Chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. We have to consider in this case the corresponding qualification in, in this text of 1 Timothy, which says this, 1 Timothy, beginning in uh, verse 4 of chapter 3, He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, it stands to reason, friends, that if something as important as the qualification for an elder's child to be a believing or saved person, then certainly Paul would have included this here in this qualifications passage of 1 Timothy 3 as well. But he didn't. He didn't. He merely says that the elders' children are to be kept under control with all dignity. So then you say, well, whoa, 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 were there were there two different standards at work here? I mean, did the you know the elders at Ephesus their their children didn't have to be saved just under control with all dignity, while those elders in Crete, though, man, their kids got to be believing kids. Or did Paul blow it? Did he, did he mess up here by giving contradicting qualifications? Well, no, of course not. Of course not. As Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote down God's inerrant, infallible word and as such did not make any mistakes or leave anything out. The fact that, well, thirdly, the fact that 1 Timothy 3, 4 deals specifically to with the behavior of the children of the elder being under his control with all dignity and not their salvation status would seem to indicate then that its counterpart in Titus 1 6 would also be doing the same that in Titus 1 6 Paul is dealing with the behavior of an elder's child not salvation thus a rendering of faithful children referring to their submissiveness their obedience to the parents versus dissipation or rebellion. And then lastly, uh, number four uh, in this viewpoint, as we've already stated, the most common way of translating the word pistos in the New Testament is faithful, of which there is no real disagreement among scholars. Again, I do believe more of the evidence leads to an interpretation of children who are faithful rather than children who believe in the sense of salvation. But what's important here is the reason. The reason for this specific qualification, which we find spelled out to a greater degree in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4, 
where it says, again, the elder must be one who manages his own household well. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And the implied answer there is not very well. He won't do it very well. In other words, the elder's home is is kind of a microcosm of the church. It's an elder's training ground, if you will, for overseeing, shepherding, and managing the church. Every man is to lead his wife and children. And yet, if he cannot do this in such a way so as to keep his children under control without dissipation or rebellion, how can he hope to manage the flock of God? He can't and won't. Now, this raises some more interesting questions. For instance, how does one decide if an elder's children are out of control or if they can be accused of dissipation or rebellion? I mean, if a child throws a single temper tantrum, does that mean dad is disqualified? Oh, man, quit throwing a fit because now I got to step down. What about a weekly tantrum? Daily. Multiple times in a day. Every day. What about teenagers and the sins they commit? And this is where, to some degree then, it really does become an issue that local church leaders, the rest of the elders, will have to deal with and do so on a case-by-case basis, including the man that would be in that position. But I think the key here based on the scriptures is that an elder is disqualified if his child's life could be characterized as being habitually out of control or with a ongoing regular pattern of dissipation and rebellion. And and maybe it's possible, too, that what is in view here. Um, it has to do more with older children, such as youth or teenagers, or even young adults who may still be living at home under their father's authority, which that, that would lead us to another kind of uh, obvious question. Is there ever a point in time or an age where this qualification is not in effect because the elder's children are grown or even out of the house and and Yes, I would say the text is specifically referring to those within an elder's immediate household that he is managing over. He is manager over. Once his children are out of the house, it would seem that a man is no longer responsible for what his children do in that respect. So as we... As we consider just these first three today in, in, uh, in, in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, what's our, what's our kind of takeaway? Because I get, again, that, that these are all pertaining to elders. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, yeah, these do pertain to elders. So really, what does that you know, mean for me? And um, I have no, you know, plans or intentions on being an elder. Well, here's here's some things to be thinking about as we go through these qualifications over the next couple of a uh, couple more weeks. One, many of these qualifications that we are going through are the same standards expected of any Christian. 
of you as well. Not necessarily all of them, but let's say again, say many, maybe even most. As I gave you that above reproach one today, how you can see from Scripture that that is for you as well. Secondly, these are the first three job qualifications to do the work of an elder. These qualifications are the standard that your elders here at CBC are to possess. So you need to know that. You need to understand that. When we put elders before you to say, congregation, you know, what do you see in this man? What do you know about this man? Is this man indeed qualified? Because we've done our our homework, I hope and pray, but but what else might you know about this man's life? So you need to know what the qualifications are. Thirdly, these do apply to those who someday might desire or aspire to be an elder. And I would say to any of our, your young men, don't discount that. Don't be sitting there thinking, oh, no, it's too high a standard, it's too tough, eh, it's not for me, I just don't see myself in that light or in that way. You never know what the Lord is going to do, what kind of work he will do in your heart. Fourthly, these apply to those who would ever suggest a name of someone they think might be qualified to be an elder. You can't, you can't suggest someone for a job if you don't know what the job qualifications are for that job. Fifthly, these apply to the church so that the church can pray effectively for the elders. This is how you can and should be praying for all of us. Pray these specific qualifications on our behalf. Six, these apply to the church because the church must know God's standard for leadership so that you can hold us, the elders, accountable in maintaining these qualifications. In order to do that, again, you have to know well what they are, and that this is God's standard for leadership. And then seventh and lastly, these apply to the church because everyone needs to know the kind of men that God commands them to follow. You are commanded to follow us, and so you need to know what kind of men we should be in order to do that or to see us as examples or even to submit to the elders. So there's some food for thought as we continue to go through these qualifications and why these are important for all of us to know and understand. And just like I mentioned back when I was giving the the job description um, for, or excuse me, the job qualifiers for our family pastor, number one was that they know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. That would obviously be for any elder That they have trusted Jesus to be their Savior, the Lord of their life. That they have understood, come to that place of recognizing their sin. That they know that their sin has consequences. Consequences being death, being hell, being the lake of fire, eternal punishment. But God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And that by putting our faith and our hope and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of our sins, turning away from sin and all that dishonors God and turning to Christ, then we can have forgiveness of sins. And that's not just for elders. That's for all of us, right? We can have eternal life life we can 
we can know and trust that because Jesus went into the ground, but three days later resurrected from the dead. Oh, we're getting to that great time of the year where we get to celebrate the resurrection. Right. I mean, that should be something that we are already starting to think about and contemplate and pray about and meditate on. I don't want it to be just that thing that just kind of pops up the week before we go. Oh, yeah, it's Easter. It's Resurrection Sunday. Let's start thinking about these truths now in preparation for Resurrection Sunday. We prepare a lot for Christmas, don't we? I mean, you know, from the secular world, they start preparing them months in advance in the stores, right? So shouldn't we start preparing our hearts and minds for Resurrection Sunday? Indeed, we should. But the fact is, is he resurrected from the dead. And because he resurrected, we know that we too will be resurrected as believers. That we too will have life after death. And and friends, uh, you might be sitting out there this morning and realize that you have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior. And I would invite you to do so even right now. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us here. And maybe that would be your prayer, a prayer of trust in Christ and what he accomplished on the cross on your behalf for your salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the qualifications that you have given us. And yes, it is a high standard, Lord, The bar is set high. And though, Lord, we know that we will not do these things perfectly all the time. Lord, this still is the standard that we strive for. And that does need to be exhibited in our lives as elders. And Father, it is a high calling. And it is a a calling that we should enter with great fear and, and trepidation, but also with great joy. What a blessing it is to be able to lead God's people. And Lord, I just pray for any out there that need to know Christ as their Savior, that they might be praying a prayer of repentance and trust in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross for them. We pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.